are live for episode 18 of First Strike. This is your host, KYT. Uh, a reminder to check out our sponsor, FaceToFaceGames.com, the number one place to get your Magic the Gathering singles. And they got every single type of board game and other card game that you wouldn't need. So definitely go check their site, online store out. Um, and a quick shout out to our First Strike uh patrons uh because of you guys we're able to continually do this show and for this episode no robert lombardi we're joined by my two best pals brian gottlieb what's up sir uh things are great happy to be here happy to have a nice rob this week i'm so sick of him winning everything all the time it's nice to have just a couple losers on the cast talk about magic it'll be great (laughs) we got doug pkr doug potter how's it going I don't know how I feel about that last comment. Uh, <laughs> the fact that I'm sitting here in like a Kevin Durant jersey for OKC, I feel like a loser. So let's go. Let's talk about some magic and have some fun. Let's do this. All right. On the first topic uh, today, well, there's a lot of GP topics to talk about in this episode. We're also going to talk about uh, a specific, a special secret spoiler, maybe not so secret anymore that we saw from a potential upcoming set and we're going to talk about the standard metagame there were some of the gp results that came out of this past weekend our thoughts on modern masters how we feel about it and some rapid fire questions that we got from our patrons so let's start off with some gp goodness today gamekeeper launched their site for gp montreal and as for the past couple of years every time a gp site launches and people check out what they're getting the, the how the price has hiked up inflated uh people are ready to just rail against them and today for their standard event in gp montreal coming up in may that's exactly two months from now for their 100 dollars canadian uh, registration package their main one you're getting you know registrations of main event nine booster packs and some people are confused why why so many packs, even if it's a constructed event. But here in Canada, because of the laws, we do have to give people something. Uh, they can't just register and get nothing for it. Um, and the, the GP also has continued this new trend of not giving out the playmat as part of the main registration. So uh, let's start off. Brian, how, how do you feel about do you? about these things who i mean you've been trumpeting like more and more expensive gps right yeah i mean i i, I do trumpet more expensive gps that's somewhat tongue-in-cheek i mean i i want gps to be something different i want them to be higher stakes i don't want the current gps we're playing to keep getting more and more expensive that's that's not my goal for these things that's kind of silly um a uh, hundred canadian for me is a little less than i paid for the last gp i played uh because i you know, exchange rate is really good right now. I love the nine pack things. I don't quite get it. I guess uh, my Canadian friends here tell me it has to do with Canadian gambling laws and a way to kind of skirt those. Um, but I mean, maybe we can team draft again. Do you guys remember team drafts when everyone used to just go to GPs and we'd get our squads and we'd battle literally all night? I remember GP Nashville in like 2011. I didn't sleep the entire weekend. Like we just team drafted every single time the main event wasn't going on. Um, and it was great. I love team drafting. So maybe these nine packs floating around can can get some team draft action going. Um, 
But yeah, the price keeps going up and up. I mean, we as we keep talking about here, we have a supply and demand issue. There's a tremendous amount of demand. Tons of people want to play in these things. Uh, raising the price is not really affecting the number of entries all that much. You know, they, they've trended down a little bit, but we're still in that 1,500 people. Um, you know, some huge GPs like the Japanese GP, I don't know the exact attendance figures, but it, it was tremendous. Um, so I don't think you can totally say that GPs are getting smaller. They're, they're holding pretty much where they were despite this price increase. And it's not going to change, guys. It's, it's going to keep happening. I, I, think, I think people are doing the right thing by saying, hey, we're sick of this, but do you know what companies listen to? They don't listen to your Twitter account. They listen to your wallet. That's what they want to hear. So if this doesn't work for you, you, you have to stop going to these GPs. We as a community have to stop going to these GPs. That will ultimately bring prices down. But right now, we're all just paying the price. Price is going to keep going up. Uh, it's unfortunate, but that's where we are right now. So, Yeah, yeah Brian, like a lot of people, um, some, some pro uh, Magic players that I talked to at GP New Jersey were saying like, man, I might not be able to continue playing. I might not be able to go to all these events anymore. But... Some of the time, I mean, we're, I think I, we're at that point where there, that I actually might be true. Like in the past, I feel like, uh, you know, this this person is still going to show up, right? It hasn't crossed that barrier. I have a hard time believing that the GP, I mean, if you look at the cost of going to a GP, the actual entrance into the GP is such a small percentage of that cost. You have travel expenses, hotel expenses, uh, other time loss. Honestly, even as we have now, I mean, when I played my first GP, I think it was $30. So we're talking about having tripled prices at this point. Um, but if you talk about like the percentage of uh, what that represents to the cost of the GP weekend, it's still incredibly small. And some of those other things have gone down too. Like the cost of flights is a little bit less now than it was a couple years ago because gas prices are down. Uh, a gas itself, if you're driving to these events, that price is down a little bit. So I think when you do all the economics of these events, things aren't totally different. Um, you know, the, the GP number is going up, but I doubt people's GP costs on a GP to GP basis are really skyrocketing because all the cost was wrapped up in hotel and travel and time away from work if that's what you have to do. So yeah, I, I don't buy that argument. I think people are still going to show up regardless of the price. <laughs> what do you think, Doug? Yeah, I think Brian's right. People are still going to show up. Um, I know for me, the price definitely is a factor. I haven't been traveling to a lot of GPs. Um, even though I, I feel like some of the flights that I found for these places are somewhat affordable, but you can't go to more than like one or two, maybe three GPs a year that are a hundred dollars or hundred us or depending on the, the price, it, it totally matters. So speaking with our wallet, um, is important, but these are businesses, these TOs, you know, even in the future of changing of TOs, it's still at the end of the day, it's uh, it's dollars, right? Dollars speak louder than people's opinions on Twitter and and us saying that we're upset about the raising prices. And, you know, at least for something like this, getting nine packs is pretty sweet. I like the idea of team draft. I had this picture as soon as Brian said that of like Brian, Rob, and I in the team draft with KYT standing on a chair, just like orchestrating us, like the conductor. It sounds like <laughs> a sweet idea. Um, but yeah, no, I used to team draft a ton. That's like this forgotten art in Magic, I feel like, that used to go to these events. And if you could get into a team draft as like a new up-and-comer like me way back in like Pro Tour Philadelphia. And, and when I was 18, 19, that was like this big thing. So um, that's pretty hype. But uh, no, back on the actual GP um, track itself, it's a bit outrageous. 
but you can't really do anything other than not show up. I mean, this specific event, unlike Vancouver, which had a 1500 person cap, they have a maximum seating capacity for the main event of 2,500. And I know Vancouver actually pushed over their cap and Montreal, especially with its accessibility from uh, like the, the New York region, people will be able to drive up. I've got a feeling, you know, it's going to have good attendance and uh, the prices just aren't going to go down as long as people are saying that, uh, saying with their wallet that it's worth it to pay that money. My hope is, you know, one TO, they could make some changes in the future. And that's something we discussed in a previous podcast and some of our hopes for what could happen with a one like conglomerate running everything where how they can choose to sow the money and how Watsi can direct them. But for now, just got to strap in. This is uh, this is the market that we're playing in. Yeah, this doesn't seem like the right tournament for Outrage either. Just based on, like I said, the the price really isn't that high after you do the conversion rate. At least for, I'm talking from the American perspective. Obviously, the Canadian perspective is a little different. Um, but also, I, I don't know how the Canadian Magic community feels about this, but I know the American Magic community loves going to Montreal. They love it there. There's there's a lot to do. Um, hotels tend to be pretty cheap near the event site. I don't know if they're using the same event site as they usually do for the Montreal GPs, but uh, yeah, people, people love to go to Montreal. Uh, this will be a well-attended event for sure. I do feel I've heard the news. I haven't looked at the GP attendance numbers for, for the, some of the more recent GPs, but turnout has been lower than expected for some of them. No, Doug, or like Vancouver had actually exceeded expectations again. Well, I think that the turnout is like theoretically lower than, um, I guess predictions a year ago or, or the trends that we were making where GPs were going up, like attendance is down, but I think Vancouver just had a smaller cap and there's these tournaments that have smaller caps that if you look at like a 1500 cap, the way magic was going like a year ago or two years ago, you start to wonder like really 1500 people, there were GPs that were definitely busting over 2000 often. And, you know, they were trending upwards. So especially for uh, formats like modern, um, which, which was, Vancouver, you would have expected a very uh, big Grand Prix. And as you talked about on the cast last week, for people from the States, it definitely was uh, you could fly into Seattle and drive up. That was a thing that you could do and a lot of people um, it, you know, it was an accessible GP, I guess, as far as Canadian ones are concerned. So um, yeah, I think from what I've heard, a, a lot of numbers are down but that doesn't mean that the TOs aren't good at guessing the correct number if that makes sense we, we also have to remember that none of this is happening in a vacuum this isn't all just about like gp cost gp size people have not liked standard for quite a while now there's been problems with standard um and as the main tournament format you know what are we seeing a backlash to high prices are we seeing a backlash to standard not being very good even some limited formats i mean people i, I don't think it's as big as of an issue as the standard issue but people are upset with the state of seal deck play at this point um, you know, Wizards has said they're not designing for sealed play anymore. They design solely for the draft format. And then when sealed is kind of poop, they just go, well, the draft format's really good. And, you know, ignore the fact that we play GPs for half the time in the sealed format and PPDQs are played in the sealed format. Um, so I've always been a little baffled by that choice, not to give it any consideration. And maybe they do give it some consideration. They just, you know, are downplaying how much they do. Um, but yeah, it's just another point to remember. You know, this isn't all about prices; these numbers. It's it's about some some issues with the formats too. All right, there's there's all these factors. Yeah, uh, it's. I just want to say it's regional too. Like you uh, look at the GP this weekend across the seas, and it had 2,700 people in the main event. So um, 
these are factors, you know, everything that Brian said is true, standard, definitely sealed, definitely. They're not quite what they used to be for a lot of us North Americans, but you know, there are certain places that are still going to come out in volume, but that's region based. Um, so there's a lot of factors that go into this. It's not just as simple as the decline in, in GP attendance. Uh, Brian, uh, you brought a point that I, I didn't even think about, uh, considering about how like it's just a part of the overall costs of course i know i'm sure you know there's a lot of those grinders that will like scrape every ounce of value they're like going i've been to gp quebec city where apparently a person like one of my friends was staying in a room with like 11 people or something some people are really grinding that value so i think those those people they're like seeing you know a hundred dollars gp they're like you know that's a huge thing for, for those type of people. And um, want to I, I wonder if the whole playmat disappeared. I haven't tracked that. I think that's a thing that's been for the last couple of GPs. But I remember, like maybe on Facebook or Twitter, on social media, I wonder if it's a result of that, of people complaining about having too many playmats and they have nothing to do with them. So I guess here they decided – I haven't seen any other GP that gives nine packs. So instead of the usual six – to give you an extra draft set instead of the playmat. Speaking, continuing on to the GP whole entry fee thing, let's get down to price structure. Uh, this up this past weekend, a GP in Shizuoka uh, happened where a bunch of two players at 12 and 3 didn't cash. I mean, is this reasonable? And if not, what steps can WOTC or, or TOs take to rectify this? Well, it will only be CFB next year, but what can they do to rectify this? So starting with you, Doug, is this, a, is this a problem? I think it's a problem personally. I mean, I've heard the argument that these people kind of know what they're getting into and there's a, you know, top uh, 64 is the cutoff and, you know, when these tournaments get bigger, blah, blah, blah. And, and WOTC has made steps that X2s that miss top eight actually get invites which at this event there was a ton of x2s i don't know if you know that uh from ninth place down all the way to 16th place were x2s and there were some x2s in the top eight fifth sixth seventh and eighth so like that this will happen when you inflate the numbers and, and i think it's a problem i think that watsi has started the solution with the uh with the x2 getting a pro tour invite but in my opinion x3 should be a cashable record at any GP, um, a couple things that you could potentially do, in my opinion, if Watsi agrees, and that's a big thing, if they agree that X3 is a valuable enough record to uh, to award prizes, they could say top 64 or 36 plus points, like for the for the bottom prize. That's one thing. But I think something that I've been considering for a while, and I do understand all the logistical issues with it, but the way that, uh, you know, there's these bigger tournaments and the way you want the cream to rise to the top, why not just add one more round on day two? That's honestly, like, when I've thought about it and talked to some of my friends about potential solutions, that's the one that feels like, you know, it it might solve some of these problems, uh, like with the X2 uh, for the Pro Tour invite problem that they fixed, as well as the fact that you've got an X3 not caching. And yeah, I get it. There could theoretically be another point in a 16-round tournament 
when the numbers inflate up higher, there's always going to be a point this happens with any given round number of tournament, right? So yes, I can understand that logic, but I don't feel like we're hitting 4K anytime soon. And when we start hitting those higher numbers, that's when GPs can split into two coinciding GPs like Vegas has done. So I kind of feel like the 16th round is the potential Band-Aid or not Band-Aid solution. Um, I think that the other suggestion is the Band-Aid, which is which is changing the prize structure so it's top 64 or uh, X3 or better. Those are kind of my two thoughts. Um, curious to hear what Brian has to say about it. Yeah, I think there's a ton to unpack um, with both the situation and what you said. So hopefully I don't forget any of it and, and hit all the points I want to. But we'll start with um, your proposed solution from a logical standpoint, what you're saying makes perfect sense. But the entire structure of these tournaments is uh, like its, its entire formation is based around not running afoul of gambling laws. And one of the ways you do that is you can't have a variable price structure. You need to say we're giving out exactly this before the event happens. Now, that being said, Wizards lawyers, in my opinion, and my opinion is somewhat informed. I'm not a lawyer for Wizards, but I am a lawyer. And I, I actually just wrote um, a piece, which is slated to be published shortly, about New York State's gambling laws. So I, I do know a bit about gambling laws as well. Their approach to this issue is extremely conservative. Extremely conservative, like it is for most things that legal gets involved with on the Wizards side. Now, I understand why. You always want to minim minimize risk as a corporate lawyer. That's kind of like your main job. But at the same time, there is room for, you know, kind of kind of pushing the limits a little bit and seeing what you can get away with. And they haven't done that in a long time. They play it very safe when it comes to price structure. Um, so I think that a lot of the, the current atmosphere around gambling laws is, at least in the U.S., there's kind of some loosening going on. And this is a really nice time for Wizards to see if there's some wiggle room for them to take advantage of that. I don't think they're going to, but I, if someone from Wizards listens to this show, especially in their legal department, this is a good time for you to start thinking about these things and maybe trying something new. Um, but Doug, that's why your your solution, I think, doesn't work right now. Um, and like you said, it's kind of arbitrary. Someone's always going to be upset. You know, there's always there's always going to be someone who's like, well, didn't I deserve money? And yeah, maybe. The, the big issue is that GPs don't pay enough. That, that's what it comes down to. I mean, if this... You would still have an arbitrary line, but if that line was going way further down the row, people wouldn't be as upset about it. I mean, that, or fewer people would be upset about it. That's just how it works. Um, not enough money is being given back to the players in these situations, and we know that. We it, it doesn't take a brilliant mathematician to look at how much they're taking in, look at how much is going out, and then comparing the VIG, because they should take a VIG. Uh, a VIG is like a percentage of the incoming money for people who don't know. But you compare it to things like poker tournaments and, you know, just actual like sports gambling. The VIG's insane. It's so inflated at this point. Um, and it's funny, by, by shaping their tournaments to not run afoul of gambling laws, they actually are like the most, <laughs> the most fleecing gambling company out there. Like they're just taking all the profits they possibly can by uh, kind of avoiding this situation. I, I, don't, I don't think this is going to change. I, I don't think you can do the solution that Doug proposed without a huge amount of risk or at least some amount of risk. We're just stuck with this guys. I mean, it's, it's not a good situation. Someone's always going to be sad. Uh, I don't, I don't have advice here. Toughen up, 
I mean, that's, that's crappy advice, but this is just not a good spot for us as players. And uh, I, there's nothing we can really do about it. We're just at their mercy at this time. What about 16 rounds, though? Because I don't see why that's against the gambling law. No, uh, 16 rounds is good. 16, I mean, they've said many times in the past they're concerned about time. They don't want to be there all night. And, you know, again, you could always say when, when 16 rounds get cr- gets crowded, you could always go, why not 17 rounds? You have to draw a line somewhere. They drew it at 15. I understand why they don't want to go to 16, but that makes sense. 16 rounds makes sense. It's something they can put on the table. Um, but also, we should bear in mind that this is – you know, an, an X3 not getting paid is not something that happens very often at GPs, almost never, um, at least in the current climate. So I don't think we need to pull out the emergency. Um, you know, we don't have a fire on our hands. We don't have to make really rash decisions. And another round is a big cost to a lot of people. I mean, people plan their flights out at certain times, make sure they can get up, get ready for work on Monday morning. Uh, so adding the additional round, is it's not free. It, it does have an impact. So, yeah, I, I guess this is one of those things where, like, I'm glad I don't have to be the one to figure out the solution to this because they're kind of between a rock and a hard place without taking some more institutional risks. So. Yeah, my thoughts is that I, I understand there's more costs. There's more costs necessarily towards judges. There's more costs towards people coming home. But I don't know, 16 is the number at the Pro Tour. 16, what it would also potentially do, I think, is these players who are making day two at X3 have a higher shot of not being dead and – that's another huge benefit. It can help mitigate this X2 into top eight problem. I, I just, I feel like the, and if you start wondering, well, where's the money going to be to pay the judges and things like that, you just described, there's this massive vig. And the thing that's crazy about magic, in my opinion, is um, you're right. Like poker, poker tournaments take like a 10% um, vig theoretically. This will be like a 500 buy-in with $50 to the house. They it's much larger you, now, but that's, that's like but, the baseline. But the thing that's crazy is they tell you, you know what they're taking in magic. It's awful because not only is it huge, it's not transparent, which is to me is awful. You need people sometimes to spell it out for you that know more than you, um, w- which is a huge problem as well. But uh, I don't know. I just feel like the extra rounds, I, there's been GPs in the past. I know there has been GPs in the past where they play an extra round on the uh, Saturday for whatever reason. I, I've i attended one that you play your full GP day one, and then there's a cut. And then after that theoretical cut, those who have day two play one more round. And they've done that because they have to be out the next day by a certain time. It has to be earlier for their rental agreement or something. Um, but th- there are solutions, I feel like, just saying that, no, this is not something we can do or not something that's worth doing isn't good enough for me. I want better reasons why we can't just add a round. People love magic. We're spending 100 Canadian dollars, 75 US is the registration price online uh, for people that don't want to actually go upload conversions and want to just pay a little bit more to GameKeeper. But uh, <laughs> um you can afford an extra round as far as I'm concerned. I, I say go for it. I want to push for this. I'm not giving up this easily. But, you know, this was the other side of this was previously a hot button topic in the community where people were like, we can't have 10 rounds on day one anymore. And, it, you know, we're, we're not trying to extend these tournaments to 16 rounds. And people were upset about it back then. This was already this is a fight that the community actually already won to keep GPs at 15 rounds. I remember that, but this was a different time. I played in that time and it was kind of absurd. I felt like back then because these GPs were like barely cracking a thousand people often back in the day. So we're talking about two different eras. We're not, we're not arguing under the same tense in my opinion. Um, Things like things that back in the day seemed absurd. 
nowadays can seem justifiable that can happen so i don't know i say we start this discussion again personally um I, i'm just completely new to this uh 16 rounds thing but can you just the, is the basis of it just to reduce the amount of people that are x2 like amount of people uh, seeding into the pt well the, so the theory with the x X2s not making top eight, getting a pro tour invite was because of how bad it felt to get 13 wins and not get there. And that really started cropping up. Like I really remember the discussion starting just before the first Vegas and that's when they decided to do it. But if you think about it, if you add one more round, it just disseminates all those records, one extra level. So all the X2s split in half where half of them stay X2s and half of them are now X3s and all the X3s split in two. So it basically just like fractures all of the, the standings out. And yes, it you still could get 13 wins. And previously that would have been a pro tour invite and now 13 and two is now 13 and three. So yeah, that could feel bad. Definitely. But I don't know. It, it just, with one more round, having that good a record goes rewarded more often being an X two in a 16 round tournament with like 1500 people, you're certainly going to be in the top eight. You're probably going to be able to draw in that last round at X two to be an X two and one into top eight, where now you're often fighting in that last round to remain X two instead of being able to draw in. If you retain an X three record in one of these tournaments, you're certainly going to cash. And often, if you're X three going into the last round with good breakers, you'll be able to draw in. That's kind of what will happen in the new system. Um, if there was now, no one is talking about this. This is just spitballing. This isn't something that I feel like they're heavily considering, but it's something that I think could solve some of these micro issues. They're not huge issues, right? Like Brian said, it's just someone feeling bad. They didn't cash. It's some people that didn't get into the top eight with their X two record. Where meanwhile, I got into a top eight at an X two and one record at a different event, right? That's just kind of how it goes, but I feel like an extra round could fix a lot of these micro problems. Yeah, I, I did some research because I remembered an event I played that was 16 rounds. So I, I went back and looked. Uh, GP Toronto 2010 was 16 rounds. It was a SEAL tournament. It was about 1,200 people, if I remember correctly. We played our 10 rounds day one. Uh, I remember I went 8-1-1. One, and one, So... I think you played 10 rounds with your seal deck and then there were two draft pods on the next day. And that was at 1200 people. So I'm not sure why we went to 16 rounds for that event. I mean, I, I guess this was the problem is that they were like TOs were doing these things arbitrarily. Um, and there needed to be some consistency to the way GPs would operate. So you could plan appropriately and, and uh, you know, this is weird. I, I didn't expect there to have been so few people participating in this tournament when I went back and looked at it. But yeah, twelve hundred people. We played sixteen rounds. I'm I'm glad that's not the case anymore. That's crazy. Yeah, that was one that uh, good friends of a lot of ours, John Rowe, took down. But uh, yeah, this is what I was saying. People were arguing that this was a stupid idea in a different era with different numbers, which is kind of why for me, I I kind of want to change uh, change the parameters when we're talking about 2,700 person GPs or 1,500 person GPs, which is quite a bit more than 1,200, honestly, like that extra 300 people or this Montreal with a 2,500 person cap. I think it's something to worth thinking about again. And yeah, in sealed tournaments, it's really rough to do 10 rounds on day one, but I don't know. I think it's one of those ends justifies the means conversations. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> 
KYT is perplexed. He doesn't know what he wants. We've, that means we've effectively argued both sides of the uh, uh, the conundrum. Brian, you mentioned how um, like obviously the the poker player in me is gonna you quickly quash that, which is like why don't they just do like poker stars or whatever, just have a prize structure so that the rake is no. Nope. You can expect the rake. <laughs> Roughly, rake or vig <laughs> to be roughly the same, so you don't feel like you're getting, like you're getting that consistent experience. You know you're getting owned for X amount uh, every tournament, but you just explain that they can't do that. Um, I'm just curious, like for is that not true for local level tournaments? Are they not allowed to do that, or is just they're keeping technically, it the hush hush? No, technically, no, they're not allowed to do that. I mean, it, it depends on your you know, the local laws, but yeah, you're right. You, you think that local tournaments can do it either and they can. And there's a lot of gray area that comes with magic tournaments. And this is probably why, if we're being honest, they are risk adverse because they don't want this carefully looked into by, you know, the federal government going, wait, there's a lot of ma- there's a lot of money going on to these magic tournaments. We should, you know, do a full scale investigation and see if they're skirting the laws and, you know, and then a bunch of, DOJ people swarm in on the next magic event in the U.S. and shut it down on the spot. Like, that's their nightmare situation. They don't want to arise any suspicion. They don't want to push the envelope. Um, so, yeah, maybe maybe that's why they're not as willing to take a that's risk. It's always perplexed me, though, because the game's getting so big, right? It, it just confuses me that it's not something that they'd be curious about at all right now. Like, yeah. I- Listen, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and try and tell you how the United States government operates. <laughs> That's absolutely not something that I understand in, in any context. So, My personal thought whenever we get into these discussions of why doesn't Magic move more into poker, as someone who's played a lot of both, I feel like, honestly, and th- this is just my opinion, so this might not be an answer, but what's going to keep people playing poker forever is the money. What's keeping people playing Magic forever is the game. Like, I think Magic is just the best game, and they're they keep, you know, yeah, the standard format sucks, but they, they keep us in because of the game. And that's why there's so many people willing to overpay for GPs and willing to stick through to chase blue envelopes to go to this pro tour. That's, you know, this fun experience, even though ultimately really we're not getting our money's worth. That's kind of where I stand on it. And I always kind of have stood on it. And I kind of feel justified when I gave up really trying to make a go at poker because I hated the game ultimately. And it was just a money chase. Whereas magic has never been about money for me. It's been about the game and how much I love the game. So that's kind of like, I think they're marketing more towards play this awesome game. They're used to say, play the game, see the world. Whereas poker without money, like, have you ever tried just playing like free poker with your friends? I've had friends say, Hey, let's just play poker for free. And like, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. That's not fun. It the game sucks. So I don't know. That's my opinion at least. Yeah. I was, I was a professional poker player for two years. I dropped out of college because I was making so much money playing poker. And uh, all it did was make me want to play magic again. Cause I had stopped playing magic at that point in my life. And I'm sitting there and I'm making a lot of money, but I'm like, this game is absolutely terrible. What about these magic cards I used to play with? That game was sweet. <laughs> and I was back playing magic all the time. So that's, that's a good test, uh, Doug. If you, if you can't play it without money on the line, then it's probably, you probably don't find it as fun as, as you think. So 
Have you seriously tried just playing? Everyone's like, oh, all in, all in. It's stupid. Like, come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dumbest thing ever. Yo, let's play test these hands against each other. <laughs> uh, Brian, like you you were mentioning, probably it's it's probably not allowed. It's just I've been obviously been to a lot of PPTQs. I wonder if it changes if it's boosters where prizes are announced like a round or two after the tournament. Yeah. I'm sure, Doug, you've been in tournaments like that. I don't know specifically. I, I actually thought about writing on this topic, um, but I think it only matters to very few people in the world, <laughs> definitely very few lawyers in the world. So that's why I ultimately uh, moved away from the legality of magic tournaments for my topic. But I think I complain about playing in tournaments where I'm getting my entry feedback, if, even if I top eight. That that was in, but like I'm getting it back in booster packs. So yeah. converting your like awful. Like I top eight it, I should feel pre- pretty good, I guess. Um, but a lot of good talk, and uh, yeah, they in some I could see maybe 16 rounds from from Doug, and I could see uh, Brian, like you said, uh, do like some of these other tournaments do, just be prepared to to lose money, and maybe we might see that under uh, one. Tio, we'll see. I'm excited to see uh, what happens next year. Coming out of the GP weekend, there were um, I, I messaged, I posted this message on the First Strike podcast Facebook page about uh, this is GP Porte Allegra. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but this was won by Teamer Tower. And uh, there was a comment on the main page of cyborg.com or whatever the new link is. Uh, Just when we thought the format had been solved, the diversity showcase at Porto Alegre will likely surprise the world. Making top eight were five different archetypes and variants, including the tournament-winning Teamer Tower. But of course, after Swiss standings, the top, like, five of the top eight decks were either Mardu Vehicles, or five-color Sahili, and then there's the Teamer Tower deck that won, and some green-black variants. And I'm, I, I felt confused of how they could say that because basically the two decks that we've been pimping on the show, Brian, just basically look like they dominated the top eight. Do you want to know how they could say that, KYT? How? They're getting paid to say that. <laughs> like they work for Wizards. Obviously, it's in their best interest to point to this format being interested. And listen, Teamer Tower winning this tournament doesn't change anything about where the metagame's at. Teamer Tower is a fine Tier 2 deck. It is entirely capable of winning a tournament. No one ever disputed that. That's not the issue here. The issue is the rest of the tournament, which was filled with four-color Saheli and Mardu Vehicles decks. There's nothing new to see here. This is not an evolution of the metagame. This is a Tier 2 archetype winning the tournament, just like a Tier 2 archetype is totally capable of doing. Um, I, I don't think that that archetype is favored against either of the um, two big decks. I, I think it's at best 50%. Um, especially, po- again, post-board, those two decks just get way better than every other deck in the format. That's the biggest thing is that if you're prepared, if you have, like, Bristling Hydras in your sideboard from the uh, from the Sahili deck, uh, the Teamer Tower deck's going to have a really hard time dealing with that. So th- there's plenty of preparation, plenty of steps you can do to deal with uh, any deck from Marty Vehicles and Four Color Sahili, don't buy the hype. Nothing has changed. This is a Wizards employee who has a vested interest in making his <laughs> readers believe that the format is more diverse than our intelligent listeners know the format. 
it's well there were two gps and the other gp we mentioned before that's the one where two x3 people did not cash uh shizuoka i love the headline for that one it's basically saying how someone played in the first tournament took owen turtonwall's mordu ballista deck and won the tournament and you saw six mordu ballista decks in that top eight so again the deck is well, that's good, that's a good place, right? KYT is <laughs> only six Mardu Ballista decks. Everything's fine. Look at how fine. interesting things are. The other two decks are different. So, oh, okay, everything's fine then. <laughs> Diversity. Hey, my question. My question is this simple, and I'm sorry for those of you that's going over your head, but the question is this: If Villanueva and Duke can lose, are they no longer the one and two seed? Like, come on, anyone can lose. That was a little NCAA basketball. But my point is, it's Teamer Villan- Towers... Villanova, Doug. Villanova. I don't, I'm Canadian. Uh, my point is, anyone can win a tournament. Like, Sphinx's tutelage won a tournament last year. That didn't mean that it was the top deck of the format, right? It didn't mean that it was even a contender. It just won one weekend, and then it disappeared. Now, Teamer Towers is better than where that Sphinx's tutelage deck was in that format, in my opinion. And it's certainly something that could win again in the future, but that doesn't mean that it's not like a a 10 percenter in these tournaments as far as like, you know, 10% it's good, 90% it's bad. And then one day, Oh, look, you just got lucky and you, you did well in a 576 person tournament that was 15 rounds. Like, so you could afford more losses on your way through to make top eight that, Oh, if you even had, two losses in Japan, you probably weren't top eighting where, you know, in a 500 person tournament, you could get three or four losses potentially in top eight. So you got to take these things with a, a grain of salt. You can't just look at a first place deck and say, Oh my goodness. Like this deck is awesome. I, I was saying on the cast before we started the 17th place deck out of the Japanese GP impressed me more because it got 17th place this massive GP and played 14 planes. So y'all can go look that one up if you want after the cast, because that's a cool, uh, cool list. But I'm more impressed with that than the Teamer Towers deck that won personally. Yeah, there's there's plenty of other ways we could beat up this result too. I mean, it's kind of like beating a dead horse at this point, but like average play skill at a Latin American GP is way down. That's not to demean the Latin American communities. There's obviously great players from there, but um, you know, Per person, the average play skill is lower. There's fewer GPs. There's fewer people who play a lot of Magic. Uh, there's fewer articles written in, you know, uh, the, their native languages, so they have access to less information. It's just a fact. So, um, yeah, this this is <laughs> good try, Wizards, but the uh, the first strike nation is not signing up for your narrative here. <laughs> we know that things have not changed. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know if we've ever expressed our, our personal feeling on uh, deck diversity and, and if, because I think, I don't want to misquote Jerry, but I think a few years ago, I remember him tweeting that like his preferred format is, is a specific amount of decks in the format. Like, whereas a lot of people like skilled players hate modern because the whole, you can't prepare for anything type thing. So Doug, where, where do you stand in that spectrum? Are you more of a, let's, let's have three top decks. I'm cool with that. Or you like the whole modern uh, flavor. I feel like I'm an outlier because I don't really mind either, but um, I do think that there's some merits to three top decks where you can start the little metagame cycle, the rock, paper, scissors that said, comparing it to now, which I don't know if you were doing, but it 
kind of had some like had glints of that two top decks and then some tier two decks is much different than three top decks definitely so as much as i like rock paper scissors formats which i do because you can find edges and hedge one matchup to go towards the other or find these techie cards that people aren't thinking about where it turns out they're actually good against both of the matchups out of the sideboard and in unique ways with different configuration plans like that kind of stuff i think is super cool like when i when green black was one of these top contenders we thought and and yeah it's kind of resurfacing but you think oh man bringing in fumigates is good in the mirror and it's good against green black like i found this really cool you know edge in two of these matchups that i like two decks is not fun but when when metagames are wide open and players get rewarded for either knowing their deck inside out or or properly sideboarding. I'm a big fan of that as well. That's how I RPTQ'd. The only one that I ever played was a friend of mine helped convince me that no one was on Graveyard Hate at the time, so Bring Living End, and it was a total, you know, pierce through the metagame where I played against literally one copy of Tormod's Crypt the entire day, and it's like the only game I lost in the top eight when I 2 won to get to the Pro Tour was the one copy of Tormod's Crypt he had. So I like that in huge open metagames where you can kind of figure out where the holes are um so that i am a bit of an outlier but rock paper scissors metagames are really fun i think yeah i don't think you're misquoting jerry because i spoke to him in new jersey and he said he loves this format so i I think that's pretty much spot on i also love defined formats i like when you can do um week-to-week tweaks that you get edges from Uh, my problem with this format is i i don't love the play patterns i don't like constant mid-range mirrors i don't like everything being on board i hate how reliant we are on planeswalkers so that's not i mean i'm anti this format for sure don't get me wrong but my issue is not necessarily with the deck diversity and i do think there are interesting decisions to be made in deck building i just don't like the way the games play out for the most part i am so sick of planeswalkers can we just have some time off from planeswalkers like just give us a little break we'll be excited to see them when they come back but like Please, I have played enough Magic with Planeswalkers. Let's just see what it was like back in the day for a little while. You know, give new people a taste of what it's like when the game doesn't revolve around your powerful onboard entity generating an advantage for you every single turn and game snowboarding out of control or snowballing out of control. I've been snowboarding too much. Um, yeah, I, I, I really wish Wizards would consider pumping the brakes a little bit on this whole Planeswalker style of, of Magic they've embraced um but they're selling sets i i can't see them backing away at this point i think this is just kind of like this is what magic is now and we're never going back but put me down for a vote for no planeswalkers in the next set i'm voting for it <laughs> what's gonna happen we already know, I know, like, I know. <laughs> gideon's coming back or something yeah. again I, I think it's funny because when jace the mind sculptor happened and it was this four mana planeswalker that was so powerful people were like whoa four mana planeswalker and then they did this like for a while the only decent ones were five and six mana planeswalkers and like elspeth was great obviously but even being six mana i feel like changed the dynamic of those metagames where you could actually get underneath before it came out. And then now we're in this four and three mana planeswalker land again, where it's just stupid. So maybe they have to get more expensive. Maybe that's the way of solving it. Cause I don't know it's if any fine middle ground that I would be happy with. If yeah. This is a way of like keeping their fun planeswalkers, but upping them. Cause you're right. Like it's only mid range mirrors because four mana for Gideon like he does so much at four mana, even before Heart of Kirin came out, where 
you know, it was Nissa on three, Gideon on four that took me to the top four. Or nowadays it's just, you know, hard or something into Gideon. And it's that, I think it's because people want cheaper planeswalkers and they're great and we love them because they're so good. But that's what kind of ruins this for everyone because they're a cheap, renewable resource on board, not an expensive renewable resource like Elspeth, which was a game winner, but you had to get up to her. Seems we're, we're all on the same page on that. Uh, Going to do a bit of a stretch to move to the next topic. When Brian talked about new cards, we, we saw Brian posted in our First Strike Nation group, potential new card. This card has been spreading around the Twitterverse and Facebook universe for the past couple of days. Um, I can't read Spanish that well, but uh, good guy. It's, it's, it's Italian, I think. Italian, good guy, yeah. Corral Rodriguez from our nation. I, I think this is the translation. So it's, um, I don't know if you've seen this post, Brian. So it's the card's called Dusk, uh, double white and two colorless sorcery. Destroy all creatures with power three or greater. And then it's like a split card. And the split side's called Dawn for five mana, two white and three colorless. Consequences, cast a spell only from your graveyard, exile it afterwards. Return all creature cards with power two or less from your graveyard to your hand. Hmm. What do you think about this card, Brian? Hmm. This is my thought as well. Um, so I speculated in our um, in our first strike community that this card might be the result of Wizards kind of being influenced a little bit by some other games out there, specifically digital games. This is a really neat, fun effect that comes up a lot in digital TCGs, uh, things like Eternal, um, where cards are able to change state as they move across different zones. Um, you know, things are tracked uh, in the graveyard. That you know, there's there's like creatures in Eternal where one of your creature, if when one of your creatures dies, it gets plus two, plus two. Now, for a Magic player, that doesn't make any sense because, you know, a creature dies and stats are erased. It's back to zero. Well, Eternal tracks throughout zones. Um, so this is like kind of moving that forward a little bit where you play a spell and then once it's in your graveyard, it becomes a different spell. I think that's really interesting. I think that opens up a lot of design possibilities. Um, I think that this one feels a little weird to me. I would expect a little bit more symmetry between the card. When, when I first tried to do my uh, kind of... Hackney transa- translation of the card, just kind of piecing together the words that I recognized. I thought one side killed large creatures, the other ha- the other side killed small creatures. And I thought that was pretty neat. Um, you know, kind of like an incremental board wipe that you could save for later if you wanted to. Um, so that part of it is a little weird to me. These two effects are a little dissimilar. I, I don't really know how they play together in the same deck. Like these are these are not typically two effects that you would want from the same style of deck, right? Like one is a control effect. One is a kind of like value-ish um, sideboard card, really, right? Like, doesn't that seem like a sideboard card you'd maybe want against control deck to, as a way to re-up your threats later? Um, so it's, it'll be interesting to see how this card plays out. I'm 100% convinced it's real. I don't think we're having that discussion anymore, right? Like, we're all on board with this is definitely a real card. Um, so a little concerned about complexity creep. You know, this gives us another zone to keep track of. We got to know exactly what's in our opponent's graveyards at all times, which is a huge problem with things like flashback. It's a little bit more pronounced here because you don't only have to track the card with flashback. You have to track how the card has changed when it hit the graveyard. Um, 
So that's a little concerning. We'll see how many of these effects there are, but I'm interested. I want to see where it goes. I, I you know, some people are really outraged that the card is super ugly. <laughs> I, I don't care. I mean, it's, for me, it's about like what the card does and it, it works. It, it, it's, you know, playing as two different cards. So I want to see what else is out there. <laughs> Doug. Oh, I have so much to say. I'm going to see if I can get through this as quickly as possible with this card. The first thing that I thought of when I saw this card is how frustrated Adrian Sullivan must be that on camera he's not allowed to lay his graveyard out sideways in front of himself like he used to do because he used to have this long line facing sideways that was obnoxious, but now all of his graveyard cards would actually be facing him and he could read them properly without having to crane his neck. So that was the first thing I thought of. Um, I actually think that... uh, (laughs) this card does work perfectly in a certain type of deck. And it's something that I know, like there's rumors that it is going to be in this set, but that's like Kithkin, a bunch of tutus. So you're just jamming all these tutus on board and your opponent plays some big stuff and you just wrath it all away as you keep alfing in with your tutus. Then later in the game, once they've killed all your tutus, you just bring them all back to your hand and you start round two. So I think this card's pretty cool. I don't think it's super powerful. But I think it's a cool design. To me, I do see the symmetry between this like army of tutus being able to, you know, win uh, at night, like destroying everything at night and during the day rising back. I don't know. I see the symmetry. Um, I like what this could open up in the future. We were talking at the card store about uh, what if there was this card that like was just garbage on the front half, like six mana fog, let's say but then was a creature that you could cast out of your graveyard that's like a two-mana 6-6 six, six trample or something like that. And it's, it's like these spore clouds fall and then turn into a big plant. I don't know. But then you have to have the creature sideways, and that would be awkward. But it gets my brain turning. I think it's really cool design. I think Brian hit it on the head when he talked about the digital games. Playing these games, you know, there's mechanics where when you draw a card, it splits in two, and you can put it back on top of your deck. Now it's cheaper and you draw it and splits into again. And this kind of does feel like it's uh, navigating into that territory. Last thing I'll say is one of my favorite things ever when I was doing Time Spiral Draft was when opponents would be playing like red-blue, would draw a card, then would turn it sideways and read it. (laughs) It's the best thing in the world. And I would often actually, I probably shouldn't say this because locals might listen to the podcast, but I would very often... draw a land and then quickly turn my head sideways and look at it and read it. I did that like probably once every four matches. It couldn't be too often, but like multiple times a tournament or every four games, I'd say, because it's some bluff potential. You, you know, you've played this in game one. Now you kind of do this head crane thing in game two. Oh, right. They think you have it, but you've actually sideboarded it out. I don't know. I'm all over it. Love it. Big fan. Yeah, I'm looking at it. I can see why people, like, most of the comments that I have on my Facebook feed are people thinking that it's ugly, like Ryan said. But, uh, I mean, I just felt like when I first saw it, I, I felt like it's just a natural progressing mechanic. Once they've had split cards before, then they've gone and tried to play around with flip cards as much as possible. And now they've got this, like, weird split changing uh, zone, it becomes a different spell, sort of like a flip spell in a way, but they have to put it on the same card. So I'm, I'm excited to try it out. I've never been uh, too disappointed by any mechanic they've come out. Uh, some I wish that they had explored more or come up with more playable cards so I could experience the mechanic more. Uh, so I hope whatever it, this cycle is, that there's a bunch of playable cards 
So, so Doug, you see this play, being playable? This specific card? Uh, honestly, <laughs> no. I don't. I don't. I don't think so. Unless like this, you know, two-two army theory is actually like a real thing. Um, the the problem right now is we just talked about it. There's cards like planeswalkers and cards like vehicles. Like this doesn't do anything about those. This oh, yeah. years ago. Like, yeah, you, you got back, my scrap heap scrounger. Like, shoot, yeah. my scrap heap scrounger is dead. My toolcraft exemplar <laughs> isn't currently a three power. Um, just so you know, because that's probably a sorcery. So, gotcha. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, right now it doesn't seem great, but I could see a world that it's playable. But I'm more excited for, like, what's the mythic one of these going to be? Ooh, I'm excited. I hope. I I just, I have that little kid, like, energy when I see spoilers, so. This is a good time for me to talk about my uh, grand theory of mechanics, and that's that all good mechanics have to use the language of Alpha Beta Unlimited like Richard Garfield created not just a game, but a language and all good mechanics are derived from that language. When mechanics are bad is when they break from that language. Energy is the most egregious offender. I mean, nothing in the language of ABU fits energy. It's its own new language. And, you know, players have to keep that new word in mind for the rest of the eternity of magic for however long magic lasts energy is a new piece of the language. And that's when I get upset. Those are the mechanics I don't like. Uh, but this is, this passes the test, all alpha beta unlimited type stuff. And, uh, you know, it, it's clear to someone who played 20 years ago, who come look at this card and would make sense of it very quickly. Um, especially so, if they speak Italian. Especially if they speak Italian. Yeah. Unlike us in the, in the first strike nation group. Um, but yeah, this, this is, this is cool. We'll see where it goes. <laughs> That was too funny, Brian. I never thought, I never knew that was your uh, mechanic check. That that is a good point, though. I hadn't. No, I'm, I'm that huge that. on that theory. I, I think the language aspect is is such a huge thing, and it's another check against planeswalkers. Like they don't really fit with the initial language. They change all that stuff around. And I, when this started becoming really clear to me, was I had a friend who he had taken time off, and he came back in Lorwyn, and he's like, "Oh, let's play some games. Show me what's going on right now." And I played a planeswalker, and his reaction was. This is stupid. I don't want to play anymore. Now, that's like, you know, a little bit of a cast off. And he was probably looking for any excuse to get out at that point anyway. And I don't believe that just the presence of planeswalkers should make you not want to play anymore. But this was his reaction. I, I can't deny. I mean, this really happened. He was just like, nah, this doesn't feel like magic anymore. That's a huge cost. I mean, it's it's not going to come up that often. But every now and then someone will go, this just isn't the game I know and love. There's weird stuff going on here. I don't I'm not going to spend the time to get back into it. That Can I just ask you before we move off this topic? I, I we could do this offline, but the new colorless symbol does that pass your test or does that not pass your test? That's really close. I mean, it's like it's a simplification of the language, right? Yeah. Like that kind of thing existed for a long time, um, but it rewrites history. Yeah, that's what I was problematic. So I was yeah. always I was always right on the fence about about that mechanic. I never like formed okay. a strong opinion either for or against. I think. Had it existed, and I mean, it does exist initially, right? Like it yeah. just wasn't, it wasn't phrased well. So we've made exceptions for things that existed back in the past and weren't phrased well, right? Like we took right. the time to sort out the phrasing for them. Um, so I, I was pretty okay with with the colorless mechanic. It seemed fine. Okay. All right. <laughs> Man, I, need, I wish I, I need a list now of yeah, no, right. <laughs> <laughs> unapproved uh, mechanics. Uh, moving to our last topic, um, this past week, Modern Masters just got released, and 
Um, from my perspective, as someone that works at Face to Face Games, uh, we had our like we didn't do some crazy price on 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 the on the boxes, and every time we would reload with some, uh, it would take it wouldn't take that much time for all of them to to be gone. And when I posted on like the Face to Face Games Facebook page that they were genuinely all gone and that we had reput the last batch. Uh, that it was definitely the last batch we had available at the time, so it felt like, from my perspective, that it was selling like hotcakes. Uh, Doug and, and people were happy and people were excited in in the uh, in-store events. We held like Modern Masters uh, drafts on the Friday, uh, the release date. We also held a sealed that a lot of people pre-reached for. It was seventy dollars Canadian to uh, play in the sealed. You got uh, six packs and, and two packs per player in the prize pool so i think people are genuine genuinely uh generally happy about the set uh is that your perspective doug uh yeah i definitely saw hype around here uh in edmonton there was a lot of my friends that were posting pictures of the boxes they opened i went to a store we had a lot of different because we have so many card stores in alberta we had a lot of different types of tournaments some were slightly more expensive but had one modern masters pack available if you two ones or three out and then standard packs. The one I went to is really cool because it was $30 entry. So 30 Canadian to do a draft three packs. They retail at 15 Canadian ish. So it was like a really good value, but none of the prize packs were modern masters. So you just only got those three, but you could win other packs so that we, there's a lot of different types of tournaments. And even though around the city, there's all these tournaments firing from what I heard, they were like filling up. We had, I think 54 unique people at the card store that I was at and you could do redrafts after the first one. Um, lots of people, people buying boxes while I was there hearing stories that on the same day at all the other stores, people are playing. There was a lot of hype. It was a lot of fun. Like I started off money drafting and then after taking a few money cards was like, okay, let's build a real deck. It was, it was just good fun doing these little tricks in limited that you hadn't done in a long time or figuring out like, once again, momentary blink, how many different things can I do really stupid things with momentary blink or, you know, turn three sprouting Thrynax off of like th two guild gates and a basic that can produce all five colors. That was super fun. That was my deck and kicking Thornscape battle mages. It just brought me back to, to the old times. I don't know. I had a lot of fun. People are opening boxes and then discussing, is this like a value box or not? I never really understand that stuff because I don't know what a single card is worth. So I was confused why like the foil goblin guide was worth less than the random like fetch land. I don't know. But there was a lot of hype around here. I've heard mixed reviews from other places, but it actually got me out to the card store to spend the whole day drafting and playing. And, and it was a lot of fun. I had a blast. Like, losing to Team Canada member Brian Sue for the 3 of the pod, but our pod also had like Marcel Zafra in it at 2-1 alongside myself. Like it was just a lot of sickos playing magic and having fun. It was a good time. Meh. <laughs> uh, it's like not that exciting anymore. <laughs> like we've, we've done this. We've been through the Modern Masters thing. Like, I don't know, man. It's it's not getting it's not getting me excited anymore. I, when the first Modern Masters came out, I was so hyped to draft it, and you know it was a really good thing in terms of getting more product out there, so Modern can kind of find its footing. But we've done it now. It's like anything; it has diminishing returns. Like I, I just don't feel the same level of excitement that I did with the release of the first one. And you know, I'm I'm so sick of the fact that 
it's irresponsible of me now to not manage my modern collection like a portfolio. Because I have a full, I have every card in modern. I can play any deck. I, you know, I have all these things. But the fact that I'm not selling them when they don't get reprinted is like throwing money away. And when it comes to like old decisions like that, like every now and then they'd reprint a card, like, oh, my thought seasons are worth a lot less. Or, um, you know, just random reprints that were taking the value of a card. Whatever. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not chasing every penny. Like it happens once in a while. But now it feels like, We've, if you have a full modern collection, you've kind of been assigned this task where, I mean, not selling your Mishra's baubles right now is fairly stupid. Like, you, they will be reprinted. They are coming back. They are not a $60 card for all of eternity. It's unquestionable that the next Modern Masters will grab this card among all these other ones, things like uh, Ensnaring Bridge and, you know, random dumb cards like Vorniclex or whatever it's called, which is like a billion dollars now. Like, all of these things you should be actively managing and selling and it's not on the same scale where it used to get burned a little bit you're going to get burned on all of these cards it's unquestionable so that puts you at a decision where well do i leave this value to rot in a binder where i don't play modern tournaments that often anyway i play like two or three per year maybe and uh you know i could certainly borrow a deck if i wanted to but instead i'm going to let these cards just sit and rot in my collection on the off chance that maybe i'll want to use them sometime i don't know it's creating kind of like a feel bad scenario for people with full collections. I'm sure that's like first world problems, man. Like get over it. You have every card in modern. And I, I know that my opinion is not widely shared in this case. People love modern masters. Like you said, tons of people show up. Um, yeah, it's just kind of lost a lot of its luster to me. And the, the portfolio thing is frustrating because it's just like you're forced into a bad decision. You, you either have the card or you watch your $60 Mishra bauble become what, $4, $5 after the reprint? I mean, they're not going to hold anywhere near that price unless they make it like a rare or mythic, but that feels really weird. Like, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, so, yeah, I've had enough Modern Masters. You know, get these cards back in the card pool through Commander decks or whatever, but um, not too comfortable with this rolling reprint system. If you put the money concept aside, what do you think about the fun of these formats, like playing things like Eternal Masters or Modern Masters or even like on Moto, there's those, I don't remember what they're called, Masters series or something like that. Because this is a fun set, man. Like it's it's got a lot of sweet play to it, in my opinion. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I haven't drafted one since the first Modern Masters. And this comes from me being like, I play things that I have competitive events coming up in. I, I don't cube draft. I don't, and I, I don't know. This is like, I'm not, this is a flaw with me. I should start doing those things again because I, I did used to enjoy those things. It's just somewhere along the line where like my time was super pinched from, you know, being a super busy lawyer and trying to still play some competitive magic mixed in with that. I got in this mindset where everything has to be optimized and, mm-hmm. you know, there's no time for things which aren't going to yield results on the back end. And that's kind of a silly way to approach your hobby, right? Like if this is something you do for fun, then you shouldn't be all about maximizing your gains on each game you play. So uh, I, I probably need to explore these as limited formats a little more. I'll give I'll give this set a spin and maybe, you know, maybe the limited format is so great that I'll just eat my words. And, and that was kind of the case with the first one. The first Modern Masters format was a lot of fun to play. Yeah. So you're saying this one's a lot of fun. Uh, I'll check it out and maybe I'll have to eat my words. But I, I don't think people felt that way about 
Modern Masters 2 or Eternal no. Masters. People weren't like crazy about drafting either of those sets. So that's kind of why when I started hearing those reviews, I just backed away and was like, oh, that's fine. I don't have to draft these. But if this one's that good, I'll definitely have to check it out. I, I think it is. And I think one thing that's a benefit, at least I don't know about all the other places, but in Alberta is there's multiple limited PPTQs in Modern Masters. So we already have this last weekend, there was a 50 some person sealed tournament that fired to qualify for the Pro Tour. So for, for people like me and for my friends who are grinding, there is a competitive reason and it's a benefit when the format is super fun. It might be broken. Like, I don't know. I, I just had the one day of drafts and talking to people, but, you know, seeing how one deck that wins is just like a sweet Esper deck another one's a five color. Another one's like a red green hell rider. Like there's all these super, it seems like dynamic decks or like uh blue white blink uh, three owed. So it seems open. It seems sweet. And the cards like you're casting putrefies and terminates and agony warps. Like it's, it's, it's fun magic. I think it's like pure good, like ABC limited with some pretty sweet spice in there. Like I'd voice the resurgence out and that card just like changes dynamics of games which is awesome so i don't know i like it i give it a thumbs up okay right that's uh we're gonna hit some rapid fire questions uh i'll start with doug because these are more uh we we didn't get a chance to have you on doug when we talked about no bands and stuff so this one comes from patron no bands sebastiana schaus who says who asked, instead of banning cards, should Wizards try the restriction route? It will hurt. Um, I guess he's trying to say it will hurt the players less who have ex- people who have invested in expensive cards for modern standard. What do you think of restricted uh, restrictions? Rapid answer, Doug. <laughs> I've always thought this could be a cool idea. I'd want to play test it first, but I think that when you put these like deck building restrictions on, it just means that things can't be as streamlined. And so you have to get a little more creative. So yeah, I like it. Brian on the board. Let's try it out. I mean, things can't be worse than they are right now. Right. So this sounds interesting, different. Yeah. I would try restrictions for a couple formats. It sounds interesting. All right. Uh, continue with the band. We got a question from, well, a little discussion, long post by Stephen Tran on our Facebook group talking about, um, now the fact that there's basically like two banner restricted lists, one that comes out close to the set's release right before a few weeks before the pro tour. And then we've added one like five weeks out from the PT. So he says regarding last week's topic on the second BNR date, there seems to be some mixed reactions to having two BNR announcements, but has there been any discussion on scrapping the first one? Because you come up with this new set and you haven't let people you haven't seen the set for what it is before you, you start banning and it, it already happened with twin and stuff like that, Doug. Yeah. I, I don't like that just because it's pretty easy to find out if things are very, very broken before a pro tour and the first few GPs after a pro tour. And I don't really like the idea of rewarding those who can dedicate the most time personally. If you were going to do that, maybe the fix is you have to move that band window to like one week after the pro tour Two weeks after the Pro Tour, maybe, um, but it can't be five weeks out, no. Brian, what, what do you think about the the, the, the first announcement? Like, one of them. I don't care which. I mean, it doesn't matter. One of them has to go. It doesn't matter to me which one it is. As long as you get one of one of them, yes, we can operate under that system. But two band <laughs> windows, dumbest thing Wizards have ever done. I will keep making that point. It manifested itself last week. Until there's so. three. 
Then the two and three, yeah. That's really where they uh, up their game is when they find room for the third band window. And then the we can weekly, have a discussion every single band week. Window. We'll just call our show First Bands, and we'll talk about bands every single week. <laughs> That'd be spicy. Every week's a new GP. First Bands. Um, and one last one by Daniel Magyar, uh, patron of the show. What's the best Mardu build for the mirror? If I had to answer that quickly, I would think I would lean towards – um, I don't know if you have an opinion on this, Brian. Uh, lead towards Sigris List, who tries to take advantage of Avacyn the most. I think it's one of the key cards. And it's was the first list that I've seen employ Stasis Snare in the sideboard, which is a great card to deal with opposing Scrappy Scroungers and opposing Avacyn's, where sometimes you feel like your um, unlicensed is to disintegration might become taxed you, because there's other targets that you want to kill with it. Having that extra removal in Stasis Snare, I think, has to help that match up, and I would just look to that build to start. What about you, Brian? Sounds right. Yeah, uh, Stasis Snare, great for Gideon as well. Um, but Avacyn is a key card. Um, Ballista kind of changes. Its, it's stock moves up and down, but Avacyn's a good place to be. Uh, Sigris List seems like a, a, a nice one if you really care a lot about the bear. All right. Uh, anything uh, you want to say to our listeners, Doug, before we head out? I, I think just on that topic, talking to locals, they've been testing a ton of Mardu. They really like three Thalia right now. So that's just uh, the only thing I'll add into Great that. Great on the play. Great on the yeah. play. It gets much worse on the draw. You so. can sideboard it, but it's it's this card that can really dynamically change you know, certain matchups and can be very swingy, which is something that might be useful in that deck. But no, other than that, I, uh, I had a great time today, and I think it was a good cast. All right. Uh, some a lot of uh, capping ideas. Capping in the chat. Capping placewalkers as a two of. Whoa, that's a lot of funky, funky that's ideas. Interesting, dude. That's <laughs> really interesting. I like it a lot better than where we are right now. Or a one of. They're like they're yeah. like legends. They're like the planeswalkers. Right? I like that. I actually really like that idea, and I don't think it's under the current modern context of TCGs. Mm. It makes sense. Like Hearthstone players are conditioned, and look. If you don't think Magic is trying to grab those Hearthstone players, if they're not, they're crazy. They should be getting the people who are like, this game's pretty good, but I'm really looking for something a little bit better. That should be their main acquisition window right now is getting those people to come play Magic, and that'll make perfect sense to them. Only one of these Planeswalkers per deck. Oh, yeah, just like a Legendary. That makes sense. Um, so, yeah, uh, good idea. I'm on board. Do something. Something besides four <laughs> Gideons in every deck. Please. <laughs> I like that, Doug. Like, give it a little commander feel to it. Just one of... Uh, oh, I don't like it anymore. Wait, I don't like it anymore. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, oh are you still going to play that with Barry? You can still yeah. play <laughs> He gets the one commander game to convince me that it's... All right. Uh, if you want to join our First Strike Nation, just go to patreon.com slash first strike. And I just want to shout out our first strike producers like this show wouldn't be possible without them adrian murchison derek pite misplaced ginger and our new one kyle smur chuck from alberta that guy's awesome he's been supporting me since uh the a team so that's that's awesome and we'll see you guys uh everyone next week so uh there you guys for brian doug and me we'll see you 